The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And our study this morning, again, is the continuing examination of chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation, which is the first century text of seven letters that were sent to each of seven churches in ancient Asia Minor. These are ancient letters, but they're not forgotten, irrelevant matters that no longer require attention. And this is because the Bible is an elastic book. And by that I mean that the Bible is fresh and it's real, it's alive, it's relevant to things that go on in our lives today. Peter wrote that the Word of God is alive and that it abides forever, that we are born again by the incorruptible Word of God. And Jesus said that the heaven above us and the earth beneath us would pass away, but His words would not pass away. And from the testimony of Jesus and the apostles and all the rest of the Word of God, we do know this, that the message that we read in the Bible is relevant to people in the world. As long as people are in the world, the Bible will be relevant to us. So we should read the Bible with that in mind, that this book, although completed about 2,000 years ago, is written to us. It's as much to us as it was to the audience it was originally given to. Now, I'd like for us to look at this text in chapter 2 once again. This is the Lord's letter to the third of the seven churches. This is the church at Pergamos, a church that compromised their faith in the Word of God. And this was a very serious charge because here is a church sliding away as it tried to appease the culture around it that hated Christ. So if you'll look in Revelation 2 and beginning in verse number 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that Hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. This is the word of God. Are you catching on? This is the word of God. Amen, amen and amen. Now in our previous studies, we've noted that each of these churches has common problems. Some are commended and some are reprimanded for their failures. They had a variety of problems, but there was one problem that was common to all of them, and that is they lived in a society that hated 
Christianity. There was nobody that gave quarter to Christians. Christians were not favored by anyone. They weren't popular with anyone. Much like we find in our country today, Christians then were hated, and fastly we are becoming hated in the society in which we live. And so there was always a temptation uh, from the people in these churches to return to their old lifestyles, to go back to the way it was before, when they didn't have so many problems, it seemed like, when nobody was pestering them and was against them and hated them, but rather it was to go back into the world and just end all the problems and persecution that they had. In the second church, the church at Smyrna, the chief opposition to them were the Jews. You remember us talking about this, that the most significant opposition was the Jews. And so Jesus called those people the synagogue of Satan. In Pergamos, we have a little bit different story. It's still persecution by the Jews, but more here we see persecution by pagans. This is a church that was a long-standing capital uh, of paganism, especially in relation to the worship of the Roman Caesars. Now, Jews and Gentiles, both persecuting Christians, have very, very little in common religiously, but they do have this in common. They just hate Christians. They don't care for Christians. They hate them and want to kill them, and they would do everything in their power to get rid of Christian people. Now, in the letter to Pergamos, the Lord takes on the pagan Gentile opposition. Before it's Jews and Smyrna, now he turns his attention to the pagans uh, and uh, as you know, the Roman Empire was, was, had declared the Caesars to be gods. They were worshipped alongside many of the pagan deities in their magnificent temples. So here in Pergamos, we're talking mostly about pagans, no longer about Jews. But the pagans were an outstanding opposition. They gave their allegiance to Rome. And the truth is that by the time these letters were written at the end of the first century... There wasn't as much worship or dedication to worship of mythological gods, not like Zeus and Artemis and all the other gods that you've read about in mythology. But by this time, the attention had been turned to the Roman Caesars. Now they are elevated as gods, and they are the ones to be worshipped. So the test of a loyal Roman citizen was simply this, to swear your allegiance to Caesar by saying that Caesar is Lord. And that was a test that Christians, true Christians, always failed because we can never claim any Lord but the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll soon see, this is one of the compromises of the church at Pergamos. What will it hurt if we just give in a little? What if we just take this small little phrase, Caesar is Lord, and let's just say it, If that'll help us to get out of the persecution, why don't we just say it? What's wrong with this simple little phrase, Caesar is Lord? Well, Pergamos was loved by the empire. It was the first city, the first city that built a temple to an emperor. You know who that was? That was Augustus. Augustus was the Caesar at the birth of Christ. And he was declared to be deity. And how fitting it was that Jesus Christ came into the world at just the time that the Roman Empire was beginning to declare their Caesars are God. And here the real, true, living God comes into the world, Jesus Christ. And he is the one who has the authority of God Almighty in heaven. 
Now, to Christians living in that culture, Jesus wrote this letter to say that he is the only one who has supreme authority. You remember in his ministry, he said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Well, in other words, Caesar is okay in his own realm. It's okay to give Caesar what he needs, his taxation or whatever it is. Give your loyalty as far as government is concerned. Caesar is okay in his realm, but Caesar is not okay in the realm of God. You cannot give your loyalty to anyone but God to be worshipped. So Jesus declared his authority, saying, He is the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. And that sword is the authority of his word. That's what we talked about in our last message. Our introduction had to do completely with this one issue. And that is the word of Christ. This is the word of God. That sharp, two-edged sword stands for the word of God. And so in the introduction, we emphasize this. It's the way that Jesus began the letter. What he does is to exalt his word. And in this metaphor, this graphic metaphor, he compares his word to a sword, a sword that has a double edge, a sword that cuts and divides and finally slices to the extent that soul and spirit are divided. It discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So it is a sword that has the power to conquer. In verse 16 of the first chapter, it is described as the sword of his mouth. In the 19th chapter, Christ arrives riding on a white horse, fighting his enemies with the sword of his mouth. And with that sword, he smites all nations that oppose him. Christ doesn't need physical weapons. The sword of his mouth... That is the metaphor for the power of God's word that he only needs to speak. He only speaks and nations must bow down to the power of his word. But more importantly than what Christ is going to do with all the nations of the world is what Christ does in your own life. What does he do in your own life? He has the power to change your heart. Those of you in here today who know Christ as your Savior. You may have come from some terrible background, some of the worst sins that people can imagine, perhaps. Maybe most of you haven't done that. But there are some of you that have been to alcohol and drugs. You've been in adultery and fornication. You've been in in all sorts of evil types of things. And you know this, there is only one thing that could have ever changed your heart, and that is the Word of God. Jesus Christ speaking through His Holy Word. So the Word makes you different from what you were. It takes an unbending, unyielding neck, and it snaps it. It takes a heart that is dead set in opposition against God, and the Holy Spirit changes that heart through the belief of the Gospel. Before you ever know it, before you're even aware of it, the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart through the Word and breaks down your resistance to it and enables you to come to Christ in repentance and faith. And so when Christ says he has a two-edged sword, he declares that his speech is more powerful than Rome's artillery. And so Christians in Pergamos need not fear the power of the Roman sword because Christ overcomes with the living sword, and that is the Word of God. I'd like to discuss this further with you today, and I want to... uh, show you the fear of this church. Because fear of Rome finally did overcome these people and led them into compromise. Now the church at Smyrna had many of the same influences. And yet we read about them that they would not give in. 
And God promised to them, Christ said to them, I'm going to give you a crown of life, a crown that's higher than any that the Caesars wear. But Pergamos would not hold on. And so instead of uncompromising faith in Jesus Christ that we see in Smyrna, we find instead that the church at Pergamos does this. Point two in your outline, it's the worldliness of the church. Here's a church that has surrendered to the world. But before we pounce on Christians in Pergamos and we condemn them, we need to look at their influences. What is it that hindered them in their service to the Lord? What was that city like? Why did Christ choose this city as one of the seven among all the cities that were there and had churches in them? And there were many by this time. Why does he choose Pergamos to receive a personal letter? They had no excuses for giving up, but I promise you that they gave up for a whole, or we give up rather, for a whole lot less than they did. So let's, let's take a look at this and let's compare ourselves to them. Would we give up if we were in the same situation as Pergamos? And verse number 13, Jesus said, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, I think here we find a reason that Christ chose to write a letter to this church. He wanted to show that there is no place where he cannot win. There wasn't any place that was more a significant place of opposition to Christ than in Pergamos. And you see it right here in this verse. Jesus said, this is where Satan's seat is. Seat is the word thronos in the Greek language. Uh, Satan's seat is Satan's throne. And so is there any more significant opposition than to be identified with Satan in the place where he's in the fullness of his power? Now we sing these little kitty songs in, in Sunday school, and we've heard our Bible school. When you used to do Bible school, we hear, and you've been to Bible schools, you've heard this. We're not, we're not going to let Satan defeat us. We're going to trounce Satan with all that we have. But the truth of it is, there is not a soul alive that stands against the power of Satan without Almighty God. And so you need to know this, exactly what Jesus says here, that Satan has a throne, and that throne is somewhere. As surely as God in heaven has a throne, Satan, who is the great imposter, the one who mimics God, he also has a throne. And when he was cast down to this earth, when he was thrown out of heaven, he usurped the authority of God in the world, and he has enough power that the Bible designates him as the God of this world. We saw it in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 last week. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. So the world is Satan's domain. Somewhere in the world, Satan has a throne. And it could be that in the first century, Jesus gave us the location of Satan's throne. Pergamos may well have been the center of his activity in the first century. And you can imagine what that would be like, that here is Satan's throne in this city, and this is the place where Satan dispatches all of those demons that go throughout the world to tempt people and cause them or get them into sin. Multitudes of demons sent out from this place to do Satan's work. I believe that Satan has strongholds across the earth. 
like a king who builds fortifications to protect his territory in various places. Satan has his thrones. He has his fortresses. And there are some nations of the world where Satan is most active. From those places, he reinforces to protect his empire and to do his dirty work. I think that one of those places today is the city of Rome. I think it's Vatican City. In Rome, there's Vatican City where the head of counterfeit Christianity sits on a throne. Satan has a basilica there known as St. Peter's, and there's a high throne where a pretender to Christ sits. He is an antichrist. He's a master of deceit to help Satan blind the minds of people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you didn't know this, but basilica means kingdom. The word comes from kingdom. It means rule. And Satan rules in Vatican City. I believe that Satan has other places. I think that Satan has a throne in the Middle East. Islam's heart is Mecca, and Satan has a throne there. I believe he has another one in China. I think that he has one in North Korea. Where communism rules and claims that there is no God, there is a God. And he is the God of this world. And then in a place where there are many gods, multiple gods, in India where there's a god of every imagination, Satan has a throne. In Africa where animists worship ancestral gods, Satan has a throne. And are you ready for this one? America. Satan has a government under construction right here among us. And his new government is the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., the court is fast taking over the powers of the executive and legislative branches of government. And by judicial fiat, Satan strikes down Christian morality and he rules through nine people on a court who have determined the morality of the United States. Now in the ancient world, the city was Pergamos. And there are reasons for this and they fit the description well from what we know of that prominent place. Now let's think back for a moment to what we learned about Ephesus and Smyrna, both Ephesus and Smyrna were thriving metropolises. They were located on Roman roads. They were linked by Roman loads, roads that were major highways, which uh, enabled the Romans to enhance their, their growth and the power of their empire. Pergamus wasn't that. Pergamus wasn't on a major Roman road. And yet it was considered the greatest city of that region, and for another reason. It wasn't the economy of Pergus, Pergamos. It was the culture. Pergamos was a cultural capital. It was the center of arts and learning. Pergamos had a library of about 200,000 books. That might not seem too impressive to us because our university libraries have millions of books. Millions and millions of books in our university libraries but if you consider that ancient books were scrolls, and these scrolls had to be rolled out to be read, they're handwritten, they're not mass-produced, they're hand-copied again and again and again, and that's very, very tedious work. One copy of an ancient book took far longer to produce than millions of modern books. And so a number like 200,000 books, these scrolls in one place, that is just an outstanding number. And it was second in the ancient world only to one other cultural center. And that was Alexandria in Egypt. Now there's a long story that I could tell you about the rivalry between 
uh, Alexandria and Pergamos, the word parchment comes from Pergamos. That's where it was invented. Uh, and that's because Egypt had imposed an embargo on the export of papyrus. They were jealous that Pergamos was gaining a lot of attention. They were rivaling their influence. They rivaled the library in Alexandria, so they hoped to slow down the number of books that were being produced. And so they imposed an embargo on papyrus that uh, is, is made from bulrushes along the Nile River. And when they did that, they instead spurred production of books in Pergamos because the Pergamines invented parchment. They invented parchment, and that was better than papyrus, and so the whole plan backfired. But Pergamos was this long-standing capital of the region. The city's an ancient, uh, in the ancient province of Mysia. It became a capital of the Seleucid Empire. Those of you know a thing about history, when, when Alexander the Great's empire was broken up into many different empires, there were the Seleucids, and they had their capital here at Pergamos. And so for 400 years, this had been a capital, and since 262 B.C., it was a Seleucid capital. Culture was the drawing card of Pergamos. Smyrna had their synagogue of Satan, but in Pergamos, there is the throne of Satan. So what's that all about? What, what does that mean? Well, overlooking the city, at about 800 feet, there is an outcropping of rock. And on top of this rock, there was built a four-story temple to Zeus. And the smoke, the fires of sacrifice went up continually over the city from that outcropping of rock. And it looked like, this outcropping looked like a throne. And many believe that this is the reference that Jesus makes to the throne of Satan. He's thinking about that great outcropping of rock. It has the appearance of a great throne. And then at the base of this, there's a monument that depicted the battle between the gods and the barbarians. But perhaps the most significant thing about Pergamos relating to today's church is the temple to the god Asclepius. Asclepios. Maybe you've never even heard of that before. But Asclepios was the god of healing. And the worship of this god in Pergamos caused him to be designated this mysterious mythological god to be designated as the Pergamene god. I thought that was very interesting that faith healing was associated with Satan's throne. So the second greatest medical doctor in the ancient world was at Pergamos. His name was Galen. He was second only to a man you probably heard the name before, Hippocrates. Hippocrates is the one from which we get the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take today. Now you take all of this, it's a cultural center, there are massive pagan temples there, and you add to this that Pergamos was a regional center of emperor worship, you take all of that together, and this city was like the archdiocese of Pergamos. Like the archdiocese of San Francisco. This is a powerful cultural religious center. Now at this point, we've got to circle back to Christ's opening statement of the letter. He said that he held the two-edged sword. Now, like all the other references that we saw in Ephesus and Smyrna, this one has special significance. The Roman leaders in regional centers like Pergamos were the most powerful of all the governors. There are only a few of these that were scattered around, and these governors in those cities, these regional centers, had the right to take life at any time. Now, normally, 
Rome was concerned with rights and due process. They were protective of freedoms, and, and uh, especially those of Roman citizens. But the governors in the regional center could act without due process. They could circumvent the courts without attorneys, without defense. They could execute a person at any time. And interestingly, that right was called the right of the sword. And in Pergamos, Christians had no relief. They had no appeal. They had no rights. Anytime that the Roman proconsul wanted, he could start a campaign of property seizures and of murder because he had the right of the sword. And so Christ chose his words very carefully that he is mightier than Rome. He has a sword that's mightier than Rome. He wields the power of eternal life and death. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that amplifies Jesus' next statement. There were some in Pergamos that held on. Even though at any time the sword of Rome would be raised against them, they held firmly to their commitment to Christ. And so there was one of them. It's mentioned here in our text, well known to them but unknown to us, and his name was Antipas. About 200 years later, he shows up in myths and legends, but there isn't anything concrete known about this man. But he must have been a very important man because he was, his name signaled attention. When Jesus used his name, he knew the people would recognize who he was. And so the Lord singled him out as a martyr of Christ. And there's some who believe that the magnitude of the persecution against him, that they did such terrible things to this man Antipas, that caused Christ to recognize him above all the others that died at Pergamos. Now, more important than the speculation about him is what we actually know, and that is about this word martyr. Where do we get the word martyr? What's well, the Greek word martis, which is a word that simply means a witness. Anyone who witnesses something is a martyr. Anyone who witnessed for their faith, that's a martyr. Now the interesting thing about the word martyr is that it was just a typical Greek word. It simply means a witness. But it was the association with Christianity that changed the ancient meaning, changed it from simply being a witness to someone who dies for their faith. There were so many people, so many ancient Christians that died for the faith, that Roman roads were lined with heads of Christians stuck to the top of poles. There were rotting corpses crucified and hanging there for the birds to pluck out the eyes and take the flesh. And this word got transformed by all these Christians who witnessed for Jesus Christ that that word martyrs became known as one who dies for their faith, especially the faith of Jesus Christ. Now that sheds light on what Peter and Paul said when they spoke of suffering Christians, suffering Christians, this is what it looks like. Peter spoke of trials. He said, don't think it's strange when a fiery trial happens. It's normal for people in a first century world. Now that makes you wonder sometimes, how do people come up with ideas like this twisted prosperity gospel that mocks Christian martyrs? How does that ever gain a foothold among those who are Bible believers? Anyone who joins with teachers of prosperity gospel do so at the expense of those who are willing to give their lives for Christ without a promise of anything in this life. 
No, only the future reward is what Christians look forward to. And every time a preacher gets up to preach about the prosperity gospel, he laughs and spits in the face of those who died for Christ. Now notice how Jesus recalled Antipas. He said, my faithful martyr who is among you. My faithful martyrs, my faithful witness. And this is just a precious description of him because if you look back in chapter number 1 and verse number 5, here we find a description of Jesus Christ himself. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the faithful martyrs. And so when speaking of Antipas, Jesus gave him his personal title. Jesus is the faithful witness, and Antipas is his faithful witness. Now, we need that information to contrast the compromising worldliness of the Pergamene church to those who stand faithful. Now, that comes next. But the Lord lets them know it is possible to withstand anything for his cause. A faithful martyr did it. He died under the worst circumstances, and they can die too. They, will, they can die too if they rely on Christ and his authority. Now let me emphasize this point again. It is the sword that will defeat Satan. It doesn't matter if Satan's throne is in downtown Santa Rosa. It doesn't matter if Satan has thrones in as many cities as there are. It just doesn't matter because Christ defeats them all. The word of his power is greater than all of Satan's dominions, all of his thrones, all of his places of power. Christ's sword is sharp, and the word of God says it will cut to pieces anyone who stands against him. And maybe you didn't recognize that about Sunday school Jesus. You hear me talking about that all the time, Sunday school Jesus. You know, it's a wonderful thing to hear about Jesus Christ, his love and his compassion and his care for little children in Sunday school. And we do want to emphasize that side of Jesus Christ. But we also must see this, that he comes with a sword of vengeance against those who stand against him. He will protect his people. Now, sometimes I wonder, what would Bereans do if the government stepped in and they said, we have the right of the sword? What if our government said, you have no appeals, you have no due process, you have no court, you recant or die? Does your life for Christ right now, when those demands are not made, say anything about what you would do if they were made? Would you be a martyr for Christ? And so now understanding that, we see why there is such great fear in Pergamos. What's going to happen to them if they don't let the world in just a little bit? Why not surrender just a little bit to Rome to keep from being a martyr, a martyr? Well, let's examine two issues indicative of a church in compromise. I've only got time to give you one today, and uh, we'll just take the first one. Both of these have to do with worldliness, making the church look too much like the culture. So first we see the problem of idolatry. Let's skip down to verse number 15. We come back to verse 14 later. We'll tie these two things together. In verse 15, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now once again, we see Nicolaitans. They appear in our text. They were mentioned before in the letter to the church at Ephesus in verse number 6. Ephesus and Pergamos are two great centers. Ephesus is an economic center. Pergamos is a cultural center. And in both of these places, the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans tried very, very hard to get their doctrine into the church. 
Now, I explained when we discussed Ephesus, no one really knows all the doctrinal issues of the Nicolaitans. What did they try to do? Schofield proposed that it's a division of the clergy and the laity, which led to a hierarchical graded ministry. And if you don't understand that, then just think of priests and bishops and archbishops and a pope. That's called a graded hierarchical ministry. And if that's true, then we just look at verse number 15, and what does Jesus say? I hate it. I hate it. But we don't need to speculate about that point. Did the Nicolaitans push that? I don't know. But no matter if the Nicolaitans are responsible for it or not, the Lord still hates it because it's not biblical. Especially when the Pope claims authority as the vicar of Christ. Christ surrenders his authority to no man and to nobody's church. So if the Nicolaitans aren't responsible for that monstrosity, we at least know this. From this text, they are guilty of idolatry. That's part of the Pergamene problem. The city is at the forefront of emperor worship, the pinnacle of rock above the city, high up there at 800 feet with this temple of Zeus, made it appear there is a throne there, and this is the throne of Satan. And so the pressure is on Pergamene Christians to prove they are not disloyal to the emperor. And so, in some form or fashion, they must admit that Caesar is Lord. Now, Sir William Ramsey... Uh, an historian of the past, uh, wrote that the Nicolaitans in the church thought that it was justified, that they were justified to comply with the test of loyalty, and that is to burn just a little bit of incense to Caesar. Is that too much to ask the congregation to do? Just a little bit. Isn't the greater good served by giving in a little rather than dying for Christ? And I'm sure that they reason dying can't help the cause. What good is a dead Christian? That's not going to help the cause. Did you know the Bible disputes that? A dead Christian dying for Christ is worth a thousand living ones that won't. You can't save people by a false gospel. You can't compromise the gospel and see people saved. So without saving truth... All die and go to hell. So if we win even one person by the example of death, that's better than condemning all to an eternity eternity without God's truth. Now, you've heard the saying, you let the camel stick his nose in the tent, and very soon the whole camel is in. I've got this little cartoon for you. kind of pictures that. You let the camel stick his nose in the tent, and pretty soon he'll sit in your lap. And you know what happened to early Christianity because the camel of compromise stuck his nose into the church. Richard Bennett, the former Roman Catholic priest, said that Rome was not the first church, that Rome was the original schismatic. The Roman Catholic church wasn't built in a day. Neither was the true church built in a day. And the, this, the Roman Catholic church was not built by Christ. It was built by compromise. It was built by gradually healing away believers in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it grew into this monstrosity that it is today after 1,500 years of compromising. Rome was not the first church. It was the first one with full-scale worldly compromise. And so in Revelation 2, the first of series of compromises for the true church was to let the camel in the tent door by burning incense to Caesar. Now I want you to understand that at the end of the first century... The empire was not yet wholly set against Christianity. It was not until this widespread lie that Christians cannot be compatible with the government 
that the government began to persecute Christians. And then we had this whole thing about allegiance to Caesar. And at that point, the empire set itself on a course to destroy Christianity. Now at first, in Pergamos, here it is. This is burning incense to Caesar. That's enough. Just start here. Burn a little bit of incense to Caesar. And then in less than 100 years, Rome wanted more. Then the emperors proposed that both they and Christ should be worshipped side by side. And so in the middle of the 4th century, the emperor Constantine pushed the government all the way into the apostate church. So now you have this melding of paganism with Christianity. Heathen temples were converted to Christian churches. The priests that served in heathen temples then became Christian priests, or so-called, and thus Roman Catholicism was born. And in it is the paganism of idolatry that we still see today. Now, the difference between the true evangelical church and Roman Catholicism is mostly this, paganism, the paganism of idolatry. So compromised doctrine gave us things like the worship of Mary, the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity, the doctrine of the sinless nature of Mary, the doctrine of her bodily assumption into heaven, the doctrine of her intercession. None of those things can be found in the Bible. But do you know where they can be found? In paganism, transported into the idolatry of Roman Catholicism. So do you wonder why your Catholic friends have no concept except of being born again? Do you know why they don't understand the term born again? Because they're not born again. They don't understand it. They don't understand anything but pagan rituals that are a substitution for salvation. And so now today you look at it and the whole camel is in the tent with all of his offspring. And that's where the first little compromise leads. Soon there is no saving gospel. Soon there is no truth. With compromise, the God of this world on a throne in Rome blinds minds to the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. So one of two things has to happen. Either Christianity must get rid of the idols of Rome, or Rome will destroy Christianity. They can't coexist because God said there can be no other gods but him. So we can't worship idols and claim to be Christians. We're either camels of compromise or we are committed Christians. We can't be both. So remember this, what, what God says in Isaiah 44, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer of the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Now that ties into the next, which is the Old Testament example in verse number 14. I don't have time to discuss that with you today, so I'm going to leave it for the next time. But let me finish by reminding you of the timeliness of these first century letters. Yes, indeed, folks, they are fresh. They transcend the ages. They are relevant to the issues that we face today. And so for 15 centuries, true New Testament churches have faced Catholicism because the state church and the apostate church were married to each other. And the apostate church ended... Roman persecution. You know how they did it? By the compromise. The state, the state no longer persecuted these false Christians because of this compromise. And so Constantine put church and state together. He made the paganism of the empire, the paganism of Catholicism, and that combined to form a new persecution. And so no longer is it Roman persecution against Christians. Now, from that time, it was a false Christianity persecuting true Christians. 
So the compromised church attacked the committed church. And it wasn't until years after the Protestant Reformation that that persecution ended. Now, since that kind of persecution no longer works in the modern world, you don't see this very often in the world today. You don't find uh, Roman Catholicism persecuting other Christians. I'm not saying that. But what we do find is that Satan has changed his tactics, still trying to get his nose into the tent. And so now we have things like the ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics together. That's where the Catholic Church wants to try and unite with evangelical churches, ECT, Evangelicals and Christians together. If not that, then we also have, not too long ago, the Manhattan Declaration. If you haven't heard of that, and this is Protestants who said, what we can do then is we can cooperate with Roman Catholicism in other causes, good moral causes, whatever that might be, plan, not against Planned Parenthood or abortion issues and things like that. The Manhattan Declaration says all of us can work together. That's the new camel trying to get his nose in the tent door. And it's not going to end any better than the other camel when it gained access through the offering of incense to Caesar. So we can't get together with them. We don't have any common ground with them because the only unity that's possible among Christians is the unity of the gospel. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. And if we compromise, soon there is no Bible. And soon there are people in our churches that say, what does it mean to be born again? We can't let that happen. And so we've got to stake our claim and stand for Christ and die for Him if necessary. A dead, uncompromising Christian is better than a million living ones without the truth. Hell is enlarged with those that have never heard the gospel and believed it. Now, at least in our way, when we stay faithful to Christ, He'll say to us, My faithful martyrs, my faithful witness, and we'll be given his personal title. See, the two-edged sword is not just an instrument of death. The Word of God is also the way of life. One cannot get to heaven until this sword has cut you and separated you from your sins and drawn you to Christ. Now, the second issue is also working its way into the modern church. It's been working for these past 2,000 centuries, too. We're going to talk about that the next time. Christ commands for us to be faithful to him, to stand strong on his word, and Berean Christians ought always to remember this. He is Lord. He is God. And there is none else. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again in this hour thinking, Lord, of what goes on in our country with, with Christianity, with compromises that are being made where very, very few churches stand still strongly on the Word of God and preach from the Bible and preach exclusively Jesus Christ for the salvation of our sins. Lord, it's so easy to compromise with the world, to bring in things that please the world, to grow our churches and fill them up so that we have more money, so we have more possibilities of our social activities and all that we may do. But when we do that, we destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ along with it. Help us to stand strong. Though the opposition is great, 
And someday it might even lead to our own deaths right here in this country. Still help us, Lord, to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way that we're going to prove that we will is the way that we live right now. And so we encourage Christians, examine your heart, examine your life. How do you live for Christ right now? And that will determine if you would ever die for him when the time comes. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.